up, everybody? Welcome back to the What If Project podcast. It's great to see you here. Well, I can't see you, but I trust that you're here. Uh, yesterday, we put up our Christmas tree in the Seabird House. Today is November 21st, so I'm recording this intro a week before the episode releases. But anyway, on Sunday, we put up our tree, and it was a, it was a blast. Usually, we wait until like the day after Thanksgiving, but Jordan is five, and her Christmas joy is so contagious. It was like a week ago, my wife looked at me. She's like, I feel like I'm ready for Christmas. I'm like, yeah, me too. Like, I feel like I feel like I'm in the spirit already. And so we broke out the tree, ornaments, and the whole nine yards. Uh, the day after Thanksgiving, I put the, the lights on the house. We have like icicle lights of these snowflakes that hang from a lower level of the house. Oh, we had some candy canes that we put along the, the walkway for the last two years. But then like, a couple of bulbs went out and like half the candy canes went out and I, I took out all the lights. Like you have to take, you have to weave the lights out of the candy cane to get to them. I replaced a whole bunch of bulbs. They didn't work. So I got mad and threw them in the garbage. <laughs> Seriously. I, it took me like three hours to go through all these bulbs, take out all the lights. I was so aggravated. It was not a, a good moment for me. But anyway, so we're going to maybe get some more, uh, maybe ones that work better <laughs> this year. I'm not sure. Uh, but I went to Home Depot with Jordan the other day. We were looking. She's like, oh, I want to get these candy canes. I'm like, I don't think that daddy can handle <laughs> the candy canes this year. Uh, maybe we'll see if we can put something else there in the front. But we got a Jack Skellington blow up that we had last year. And we're adding Olaf, the snowman, this year. And uh, anyway, so Jordan is is super amped for it. And uh, it's just a... A fun time of the year when you have little kids, as many of you as many of you know. But today we're talking to Eric Scott English, uh, a brand new guest for the show. He wrote a book called Unenlightenment, a theological foundation for deconstructing and reconstructing the Christian faith. You might be thinking, oh my God, like another deconstructing book. And it's true. There's so many out there. Even I wrote one, <laughs> right? Go to Amazon, by the way, and buy it. It's called Rethinking Everything. But anyway, last week we talked to Dan Henderson. He wrote a book about deconstruction. Uh, Eric, another book about deconstruction. But both of these books are very different. And what I love about Eric, and you're going to see this in the episode, is that even though he is and has, it's an ongoing process, right? Deconstructed his faith. Uh, the beautiful thing is that he, he shows you that you don't have to let go of things that you used to find valuable and important. I think that's important, right? Because a lot of times people go into deconstruction and it's just like this idea that I have to just get rid of everything, right? Everything from my past is toxic. And we start to realize how much the past things hurt us, in some ways traumatized us, theologies, doctrines, things like that. And we think, well, I just got to get rid of all this stuff so I can start fresh. And in some cases, that's true. Some people might need to do that. But there's not a prescription, right? Everybody's not the same. So you got to know what works for you. What Eric shows us is that for some of us, you don't have to get rid of everything, he still goes to church. Uh, he goes to a Reformed church, <laughs> Reformed Church of America. Uh, I pastored a Reformed church way back in the day. And in many ways, it's it's the most different world <laughs> that I'm in right now. But Eric finds home there. And so he goes to, he goes to church on Sundays. Uh, we talk about prayer. We talk about Bible reading. We talk about all these different things. But he just approaches this stuff differently than he used to. And that's the key, right? You don't have to take the baby and throw it out the window with the, with the bath water. You can throw the bath water out and you can you could draw a brand new bath 
to put the baby in, right? To put the beliefs, the doctrines, the ideas in. And that's what's so beautiful about this book. And so if you're in this place where you're wrestling with, like, I miss some of the things from my past. I, I, I don't feel like I want to get rid of all this stuff. I, maybe I just want to Kate take it and tweak it and throw out the bath water and draw a new bath and get in the bath and, and just kind of sit there with this stuff and, and let it linger and process through it and rethink it and, and keep it and hold on to it. You can do that. You, you don't have to throw it away. You don't have to ditch it. Maybe you do have to. Some of us do. I've ditched a lot of things, things I will probably never go back to. And that's fine because that's what works for me. But that doesn't have to be everybody's case. I think that Eric's story, his book, this conversation is going to give you the freedom to hold on to some things that maybe you're not ready to or don't want to ever let go of. Uh, So anyway, I'll put his links in the show notes. Also in the show notes, Patreon. Friends, I got to tell you, Patreon is a blast these days. Uh, It's totally changed. So there's still tiers, but every tier gets the same reward, which is entrance into a community. So if you give $3 a month or $100 a month, everybody gets entrance into a Discord group, uh, invites to monthly Zoom hangouts, uh, opportunities to jump into a book club. And this past Sunday, yesterday, uh, so I'm recording this again on the 21st and the 20th, we had a Zoom hangout for an hour, and 12 people showed up from various parts of the U.S., Seattle, uh, Atlanta, uh, Florida. We had people from Canada, Norway, jumping on this call to say hi and just to check in, to tell stories, to talk, to laugh, to share things. And people are making friends virtually and feeling less alone in the universe. One person said, like, I, I had no idea... I could find something like this. And they just felt so at home with all those people. And it was so much fun. We have 51 patrons and 12 of us got on the call yesterday. And the time before that, we had other people on the call, some people who weren't able to make it yesterday. But it's just a different groups of people jumping on, hanging out, getting to know each other. So if you want that, you can have it. Uh, Patreon starts at $3 a month. But here's the thing. If you can't do $3 a month, I get it. I've been there. Uh, I will give it to you for free. You just send me a message. Email me, whatifproject.net at gmail.com. Message me on Instagram or Facebook or uh, the dumpster fire of Twitter, (laughs) whatever, wherever you can find me. Uh, Message me and just let me know. And I'm happy to let you in because it's it's community and nobody gets community withheld from them, uh, especially for financial reasons. So anyway... Open invitation to join the fun. We had a blast yesterday. I'll put the links in the show notes. All that to say, my friends, that's it. Episode number 232 with Eric Scott English. Enjoy. I need your guidance, Lord. Come on and get me, Lord. A real one coming to your throne. Gotta believe that I'm of your own. Conversation, revelation from the maker of man. Falling to my knees, praying to God, bless me with my one and my needs. Know that he got my back and no choice but to proceed. Only thing that I ask is that you do set me free. Free. Falling to my knees, praying to God, bless me with my one and my needs. Know that he got my back and no choice but to proceed. Only thing that I ask is that you do set me free. Look, sometimes it doesn't hurt to be selfish. No, I got a big heart, I like to be helpful. 
some people take it for granted it goes hey everybody welcome back to the podcast today we are sitting down with eric english to talk about his brand new book unenlightenment subtitled a theological foundation for deconstruction or deconstructing and reconstructing the christian faith and so eric welcome to the podcast my friend it's great to connect with you hey glenn thanks so much for having me on Absolutely. So first things first, uh, maybe take a few moments to tell us a little bit about yourself, some of the highs and lows of your journey up to this point. Uh, who is Eric English? <laughs> wow, that's a complicated question. That's it. We, uh, we have, how much time do you have, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, let's see here. Um, so uh, I am a, uh, well, I'm a writer. I write for Pathios, the uh, animal podcaster. Both go by the same title, Unenlightenment, as the mm-hmm. book. Um, it's nice I'm that sure, everything kind of flows together. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get into what that means and stuff like that a little yes, later. But, for sure. Um, so I've been doing that for uh, quite a while. Been uh, writing uh, for Pathios on and off for the last ten years. Mm-hmm. Uh, doing the podcast for the last uh, couple of years, um, and so just really enjoying this uh, season in life and just the experiences that I've uh, been able to get. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, back in the train up just a little bit, I was uh, not raised in a Christian home. Mm-hmm. I uh, became a, a, Christian, a Christian after having a conversation with an old school uh, Baptist evangelist mm. um, who at a football game was doing the whole hand and tracks out type yeah. deal. And um, I had been living on my own for a while and um, I had decided that uh I had been sort of fed up with life and mm-hmm. wanted to try a different direction. And so uh had a conversation with this guy. And when you're depressed and you're young and you hate life, uh Jesus is the way to go. That's so it. makes it all better. <laughs> yeah, that's uh that was a that was a good uh, uh combination there. And he saw me coming a mile away and mm. uh, I started going to church with him and and stuff like that. Um so uh, they discipled me for the next like couple of years. Um, you know, I didn't, I, I had a, a somewhat traumatic uh, experience almost right away as we encountered a huge church split. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pastor allowed his uh, daughter to go to a prom or something like that. Whole yeah. footloose thing. That'll do it. And uh, <laughs> so uh, I was a disciple for a couple of years, went to a Christian college, wanted to be a youth pastor, sort of like, towed that line there um me too youth pastors unite let's go yeah uh, well <laughs> it, it didn't last long yeah uh after my first uh youth ministry job i was fired so mm. um political reasons and uh um that was my first experience with um uh, really the political side of the church the underbelly. and it was really <laughs> a, a traumatic experience mm. to say the least uh, I gave up ministry right then and there. Really? And, uh, so I'd, yep. So I never wow. go back and work in the church again. And I haven't. So, mm-hmm. um, just, uh, decide, just really a time there of, uh, thinking. And I had met my wife at, uh, at college who came from a King James only fundamentalist, uh, Baptist tradition. Mm-hmm. So that was fun. And, uh, we, uh, sort of deconstructed together and, um, I decided uh, after shortly after college that I was going to go to graduate school to study mm-hmm. historical theology and stuff. To um, I wanted to write and uh, maybe teach and uh, and I needed to know more about 
evangelicalism and Christianity and stuff like that, because things just weren't making any sense to me. Yeah. Um, the, just the combination of what I was seeing, how, how, uh, I wouldn't have classified it the, this way then, but how evangelicals were living versus what they were teaching at the pulpit was so radically different. Yeah. Uh, and I was really, and I went to evangelical seminaries too. Mm -hmm. Um, and we, I encountered, uh, a heretic named uh brian mclaren oh boy <laughs> and uh i was really shot i actually fell in love reading his stuff mm -hmm. and uh i couldn't understand why the professors in my classes hated him so much yeah. yeah and it wasn't and it wasn't like we just disagreed to you know we just disagree with him or he comes from a different tradition or, yeah. or whatever there's just this gleam in their eye of hatred yeah. And I just never, I just never understood that because to me, as I read him, it felt like we're supposed to help the poor. We're supposed to, you know, do all of these things for the kingdom. Yeah. And that's what they preach every Sunday at church. So right. I didn't understand well, why he was deal. a heretic or what the right. heck was going on. And, <laughs> uh, you know, later after, uh, years of having some conversations with him and stuff like that, uh, I learned more behind the scenes stuff but mm -hmm. based on the writings alone uh it you, i couldn't figure it out and it just really really sort of haunted me as we i continued my uh car, car, academic career i after doing historical theology i went to a different school and did philosophy mm. you know got to be well-rounded there <laughs> and uh just really trying to get a critical eye and uh you know through so so there's this uh story where i i used to work these menial jobs uh during graduate school mm -hmm. and um I, I worked at a bookstore mostly and so i would always carry with me this journal or these little scraps of papers that i would find laying around mm -hmm. um and when i had an idea i was always always just thinking when you have a menial job you 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 can think a lot right. and in between customers or when you're stacking books or whatever it is you're doing and whenever I had those uh, an idea as to what I was thinking about, I'd write it down mm -hmm. and I would bring it home, put it in a file, put it away, you know, chew on it for a little bit, pretend like I was this famous author writing books and stuff like that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, organizing my thoughts that way. And then yeah. I, so I did this for four or five years uh, during that schooling there. And that was really served as sort of my deconstruction as I was working through um, all of these ideas and things that weren't making sense to me mm. and came out of, even though I went to evangelical schools came out of those schools, very much more of a progressive uh, Christian because I was able to um, critically evaluate. And uh, as I was learning and I've always, to me, like religion and God and stuff has always been a search for truth for me, mm -hmm. not so much wanting to hear to a particular religion or belief. And so to me, I go where the truth leads me, and uh, so I don't have a lot of the baggage that some people may have when they're trying to reevaluate some of those things. Sure. Um, so then, uh, you know, fast forward like 15, 20 years later, mm. um, I uh, get a chance to mingle with some, you know, church leaders and stuff like that. Um, Doug Paget, Brian McLaren, uh, Frank Schaefer, you know, people like that, and... I was encouraged to 
think about putting these thoughts and all these ideas into a book. Hmm. So uh, a couple of years ago, I started that process and that's the resulted in the book on enlightenment. I love it. Yeah. I have some, there's so many parallels between our stories because just listening to you talk about like your experience in the church. That's one of the things that like, I, I wanted to be a pastor. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a youth pastor. And then I wanted to be a senior pastor, a lead pastor. And I got to both of those places. But when I got to my lead pastor job, I often say that I saw the underbelly of the church. Like I saw the politics of the church, you know, the, the board meetings, all the different things that go on that people in the pews don't generally see all the time. And I was like, I can't do this. Like, this is just not my world. And the, the pressure that I felt, the things I had to do, the person I, th- I felt like I had to be, I was like, this is just not, I can't do this for the rest of my life. And so I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. And I left that, that world. And then my deconstruction also really began to happen in seminary because I was in an evangelical seminary like yourself and all the questions started coming up for various reasons. And I had to really go about it quietly because there wasn't any place I could go in that building <laughs> to bring my questions because they wouldn't really be welcomed. And so, you know, much like yourself, like they weren't too happy with Brian McLaren and other people who I was reading and Rob Bell and those kind of people. So I really had to kind of keep it under wraps, but I made it out of that, that place and I got my degree and everything, but I, I came out a much different person than I was when I went in. And I often say that I'm grateful for seminary because it gave me a lot of the tools to dig into these issues um, and to research them and to find kind of the answers that I'm looking for and to do the digging. Um, and I wouldn't have that, I think, approach if I didn't go to seminary. So, yeah. All right. So Unenlightenment, uh, the book, I think it's, I think it's really, really good. You did a really good job with it. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious because I know our listeners are, are definitely wondering this, but how is your book different from all the other books out there about deconstruction, reconstruction? Because I just had Dan Henderson on the show. Okay. Uh, he, he wrote a book about uh, deconstruction. It just came out with choir uh, yesterday. Uh, Brian McLaren's been on the show, Naked Pastor, Dana Butler Bass. So what makes your book stand out from the others uh, that are out there? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, in this publishing process, one of the, uh, um, let's see, not, not, well, I guess sort of pitfalls or, or difficult mm-hmm. hurdles to yeah. get over were, um, was that question because, uh, you know, it's right there in the title deconstruction and, and reconstruction, but mm-hmm. the book is, I, I believe different than, uh, some of the other books that you'll find out there, uh, in a couple different ways. The first is, uh, the way that the book is laid out this is very a very basic one here to start with but the way the book is presented it's it's presented in sort of like a i like to think of it as a mentor Mm -hmm. i think the deconstruction process is a dangerous process Mm -hmm. when people not all people but most people if they go into that process alone it can be a very very difficult lonely uh, process that can oftentimes lead people to atheism Mm -hmm. And I don't think it has to, it can, you you know, everybody thinks differently and has different perspectives. So, you know, even if you go through the whole process, maybe it still does. Mm -hmm. But um, that was one of my main concerns was I felt like I was seeing way too many people uh, going into atheism. Mm -hmm. And so there, I think there were two reasons for that. One, I don't think people were finishing the process. So they weren't going through deconstruction and then reconstruction. Um, And then from there, I haven't written a book on it yet, but it will be coming um, what to do after you've done all of this stuff and how to be reintegrated back into community. But um, 
uh, so the deconstruction, reconstruction, you know, together in this process, learn, doing things, learning how to critically think. So I provide my own sort of deconstruction through this process as an mm -hmm. example. I don't want people to read the book and then come out believing the same things that I believe, but I use it as a way of saying, look, we share logic. Mm -hmm. And as long as we're rational, this is how I have thought through this process. People will diverge throughout that process, but I think that we share that process yeah. and that if we are using that process, which is sort of a universal process that we all should be using mm -hmm. to think through things and, and stuff like that, then we should have more confidence in our ability to reconstruct then those beliefs that we have. Um, I try not to hold back on anything. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, I also want to be, I know that people are afraid of progressive Christianity if they've not experienced <laughs> it Yeah, because there's a lot of, uh, voodoo out there. Yeah. And of course we're witches. Of course. So, um, uh, all that new age stuff anyway. Um, <laughs> so, we, uh, just wanting, and I, and I use progressive Christianity, not as a, um, uh, and not as the way, mm -hmm. but I, cause I view progressive Christianity different. I think than most people do. It's not, not really, uh, it's just sort of a place, an in-between state mm -hmm. of, uh, for people to deconstruct, reconstruct doubt, um, all those things in a, in a place that's safe where they're among uh, people who care for them and who can help them through the process. And then it should be the case. I think this is my opinion should be the case that, that people come out of progressive christianity and into something else sure um i think they what they carry with them are these values and principles of critical thinking and understanding and openness uh, tolerance these sort of things that are not usually taught um in i use evangelicalism as sort of the enemy here but they're they're not <laughs> um and i try to be clear about that in the introduction um, I'm just sort of creating these categories here so that because most people who are deconstructing right now are doing so out of evangelicalism. Sure. Uh, so I sort of use that as our as our starting point and then uh, bring them through that process. So I think all of those things. Oh, and and at the end, um, I include a postscript on uh, the psychological uh, experiences that people may be going through mm -hmm. sort of help them let them know first that they're not alone, that. A lot of people have gone through the same things they're going through, uh, what they should, what they should, what they can do, some tools that they can use, mm -hmm. some ways of uh, helping them think properly through the psychological things that they may be thinking about, you know, further doubts, like why even be a Christian at this point and, mm -hmm. and different things like that. Um, so I think all of those things together create a unique piece of work. Yeah. And I felt like in the book, like you're not telling, you're not telling people how to, like you said, not not telling people what to believe you have to believe like I do not laying out a format. Like this is how you have to go about it. Cause a lot of deconstruction books do that. Like I, I come away from reading them feeling like this person's speaking down to me, like almost telling me what to do and how to do it. Whereas you kind of take these different topics, you talk about your journey and then it kind of makes me feel more comfortable with my own journey. And I might be able to take some of the things I learned from you, apply them to my own life and some things that they might not work for me. So yeah. I thought, Bravo. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> Five-star <laughs> review. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And the the word unenlightenment, let's go there for a minute. Sure. Uh, that goes with your, like you said, your podcast, your Pathios blog, the book title. It's a unique word. Uh, what's it mean? So uh, it is sort of a uh, uh, 
ironical double entendre. Mm-hmm. It in one sense refers to um like it refer well, first and foremost, it refers to the presuppositions that the Enlightenment, which is a period of of thinking and time that we're we're post Enlightenment, but we are still uh, well within the uh, realm of being influenced by it with modernism. Mm-hmm. And so the unenlightenment is sort of the undoing or the rewinding of enlightenment ideas and thinking mm-hmm. and sort of to bring us to a place of a blank slate. Um, we can then reevaluate enlightenment thinking at that point if we want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe, maybe on the other end, we come out the same way. Um, but Hopefully, we have been able to come back through uh, that period and understand things like um, Hegelianism and how that has influenced the church, mm-hmm. uh, evangelicalism and its sort of like understanding its pseudo history versus its real history. Um, so it's it's also sort of this, uh, uh, in one sense, unenlightenment is uh, rewinding mm-hmm. the history a little bit and rethinking it. And uh, on the other hand, it is by doing so, by unenlightening yourself, you're re-enlightening yourself. Mm. I like that. So it's almost like going full circle. It's like starting back at the at the drawing board and kind of understanding uh, how how we got to where we are and rethinking all of yep. that, like that. All right. So one of the things in the book, I want I, want, I have a bunch of topics from the book that I really okay. want to go over with you. Um, and I don't know how many we're going to make it through, right. but we'll, we'll just see. But the, the most important one for me is uh, kind of the overview that you gave of evangelicalism. Okay. And I don't think we've ever talked about that on the show before. Right. And so I was wondering if you could maybe take our listeners through that a little bit, because I think a lot of people have this idea, and it's a wrong idea, that evangelical Christianity is Christianity. Like it's the original, most orthodox, you know, purest version of Jesus and his teachings. Like I was brought up in that world from the fourth grade all the way through seminary. And so that was like my mindset. Like this is this is what the apostles have hand, handed us kind of thing. But it's it's not really true because evangelicalism, as you point out in the book, um, is a relatively new, I think, belief system within the realm of Christianity. So maybe you could take us into that history or into that background a little bit of evangelicalism without giving away all the pearls of wisdom that you share <laughs> uh, in the book. Sure. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, um... I actually don't make this first distinction in my book. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't think it's necessary, but I think it'll be interesting for your audience. Um, There is a, I think it's important that you first distinguish between um, English evangelicalism and American evangelicalism as evangelicalism was really uh, started uh, or formed uh, overseas Mm -hmm. uh, before uh, Puritanism and stuff like that came to the States. Um, but really, um, evangelicalism is a, a sort of a response to really the uh, fundamentalism. There, so there was the gosh, there's so much going on in, in <laughs> the, this context. Like, where do you start? So it's uh, so you have uh, uh, all of this uh, in, we'll say, enlightenment stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, happening for and people are like in America and stuff like that, and people are really uh getting on board. And there's all of these rallies and different things like that. We're talking like late 1700s mm-hmm. to into the 1800s, but evangelicalism as an entity really doesn't take off until uh the late 1800s to into the 1900s, and it's and it, it sort of starts as fundamentalism. 
Mm. And so in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you had this, this huge, like, and the reason that came about really was because of science mm. and uh, evolution and theory and stuff like that. Uh, Darwin's origin of species had come out um, like 20 or like 50 years before that. So that had really been um, uh, impacting culture. And so the fundamentalism sort of arose out of that need or wantingness to bring people back to the Bible. And here's where you start seeing things like inerrancy forming, like the doctrine of inerrancy and stuff like that. Um, and then eventually like we're moving on into the thirties and stuff and, and people began separating themselves from fundamentalism because they didn't believe that it really engaged in the culture. And mm -hmm. so um, then you had this sort of like, I refer to it as like this Billy Graham style of evangelicalism that arises um, and sort of creates what we're all, well, most of us are familiar with today. Mm. And what, what, like what year, like time frame is that, is that coming to the surface? The Billy 30s. Graham style. Yeah. Yeah. Thirties, forties. I think that's just so interesting because like, again, like I said, like I've, I came, I came out of seminary with this idea that this has just always been like, this is the way Christianity is. This is the way it's always been. This is the way that God wants it to be. It's the way that it will always be. And like to hear you talk and like other people I've read, like I know Diana Butler Bass has a book out about the history of Christianity. Like it was just blew my mind to realize that that is just far from reality. Yeah. And, and it also is the case. And I use sort of that as a presupposition mm -hmm. or as a context of what I just discussed with you as a, a way to frame doctrine and, and theology moving yeah. forward. Because yeah. if uh, it, when you really sit down and look at how doctrine and theology is formed, it is formed very modernly, and it's not as, we'll say, orthodox as one might think. Yeah. Like a you said lot about, of them are very new. Like you said about inerrancy, because that was another right. one that I assumed was just always has been, like the Apostle Paul, you know, like said it would, would have talked about inerrancy, but like to, to realize <laughs> that that came out of this movement of evangelicalism in the you know late 1800s 1900s whatever it's again it's just, it's just i think knowing that puts so much different context on the belief system itself if you know mm -hmm. these different if you know the history behind it so um you know i i cite even uh evangelical scholar john woodbridge who wrote mm -hmm. an article on um inerrancy and uh even you know it now it, I I wouldn't say that inerrancy started in fundamentalism. Sure. Um, there are traces of it mm -hmm. throughout the past, um, but I but people weren't saying that they believed that the Bible was the inerrant word of God and stuff like that until fundamentalism started rose up, and then fundamentalism created the the contours of inerrancy and and the structure of it, and said mm -hmm. this is what we believe about the Bible. Mm -hmm. So they were taking portions of what they saw in history. And bringing it and creating this thing. So yes, in one sense, it was created during that time. In another sense, they're seeing traces of it throughout history. But even John Woodbridge argues that inerrancy does, and even he's a evangelical scholar, argues that inerrancy isn't isn't as uh, ancient as many people think. Yeah. So what what you're obviously well well read in this. So if somebody wanted to know more about the history of evangelicalism aside from your book, like where I know you have some footnotes in there, but could you mention to some people who might not be able to pick up your book, like where they can go, whether it be online or to pick up a book or article or something like that to read a little bit more about the history of evangelicalism? Um, so uh, I, I believe Mark Knoll has written some okay. stuff on, on that. Um, yeah. 
and um gosh there's a uh, another one that's i have one on my I shelf can, and i can't I can remember the name of it see the picture there's of somewhere. the cover in my head but i can't remember the authors when name. god talks back is that it i see it up there somewhere i don't know might be um <laughs> uh yeah so i, I mean mark Knoll is a good reference mm-hmm. and, and to be honest you know most um like uh, surveys will also in, you know, say the same thing. I just don't think that people are reading enough or understanding enough or even care to, to look up the information. Yeah. Uh, but it is readily available to look up all of these things. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I think that's the thing is that you, you, you just assume that what you've been told is true. Right. So I was like, well, I guess that's it. <laughs> so what, but you know, don't do your own digging. So once you do your own digging, You'll be very surprised at to as to what you find. So the second thing I wanted to talk to you about, which kind of stems out of now evangelicalism, is about the Bible because um, I was taught, a lot of religions were taught, and we've already talked about it, is that the Bible is inerrant. You know, it's perfect. It's the it's the Word of God. Uh, it's in a sense divine. It's the fourth member of the Trinity, maybe the third, <laughs> because we don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit, so we kind of push him off to the side. But now they're at this place where they. People, you know, they don't believe these things anymore. So I have a lot of people that reach out to me and say, like, I don't know what to do with the Bible anymore because, like, I used to believe this about it. I don't believe this anymore. Like, what do I do with it? And what place does it have in my life? So I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about your journey with the Bible. Uh, how has your relationship with it evolved over time? And what place does it or what role does it have in your life today? And is that role as primary as it used to be? Or what's it look like for you on a regular basis in regards to the Bible? That's uh for me, that's like the thing. And that's sort of like the question you asked at the very beginning about um, like wanting to know my story. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something that I could definitely fill multiple podcasts. with. <laughs> so um, in 2013, I wrote an article. This is one of the um, first uh, times I sort of put myself out there. Mm-hmm. And I began thinking this was a, this was a result of some things I'd began thinking about. And so the name of the article was the Bible is not the word of God. I'm sure that went over really well. Well, uh, no, uh, (laughs) that was uh, where I got my first badge as heretic. So that was my first (laughs) real experience with all that. That was great. Um, But the idea behind that was, and it sort of is the impetus behind all of the things that came after that, uh, was that. I compared, uh, it was sort of like a polemic, a poetic polemic that I wrote. So it wasn't like a normal article that you would be used to reading. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can Google it. The Bible's not the word of God with my name, Pathios, and it will come up. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, it was the only, to this date, the only thing that's sort of gone like semi-viral for me, mm-hmm. like 50,000 shares, well over hundreds of thousands of people viewed it. Um, so it, it garnered a lot of attention and I, mm-hmm. and I thought, and I thought to myself, I, if I'm really going to do this and think, think about the Bible in these terms, I really need to know my stuff and, and really sort of hammer down my, my thinking on this. But the idea was that modern Christianity in particular evangelicalism treats the Bible like a golden calf. Mm-hmm. And I sort of draw these uh, illustrations between the story of the golden calf and the story of how we, understand the Bible and and their similarities and sort of go back and forth and show, look, we idolize this thing. Mm -hmm. Um, We, this is, this is, we call this the foundation of our faith when we should be saying that Jesus Christ is the foundation of our faith. We hold this up to, uh, uh, um, we, 
treat the Bible in many ways today, much like the Catholics did, that we reformed out of. <laughs> right. <laughs> it just looks a little bit different, but it's the uh, exact same thing when you think about it. Mm-hmm. And um, when it, the the primary problem when you look at the Bible that way is that what ends up happening is doctrine and theology end up getting God's stamp of approval on them. Mm-hmm. Because when the Bible is raised so high and and there's also the issue of hermeneutics and interpretation and stuff like that that we would have to get into too. But when you raise lift the Bible up that high and um, you begin to develop out of it ideas about what it's saying, then it's not a far leap to say that this is what God wants for humanity, yeah. my theology. Yeah. And then you start developing all of these different denominations arranged around those. Yeah. And so this idea that the that the Bible is the word of God is I spent a lot of time on and I think it's a an important thing that and again this is the ironical idea of unenlightenment is I believe that what most people would consider a very inept uh very low uh viewing of scripture my view what other people probably think mm-hmm. um is actually the high view of scripture and their idea of an, an inerrant scripture is actually the low view of scripture. Mm. So um, I, I think it's in, when you're thinking, when you're thinking about it in those terms, I still hold the Bible as a very, at a very high level. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do so rationally and I do so um, with the complete understanding that it was written by human beings who are, were experiencing God in variety of ways Mm-hmm. And that those things need to be understood. In fact, in the append in the appendices, I include what um, I've started uh, working on as a sort of working template for a new way of a new perspective of looking at the Bible, mm-hmm. and um, sort of trying to get rid of all of these systematic methodologies that people use for interpretation and and use uh, terms like perspective and and it's actually called pers- uh, narrative perspectivism. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, still working on that, but I include a little bit of that sort of as an open source uh, primer for people to use and uh, work off from and, and, and uh, contribute to and uh, stuff like that. Because I do think that the Bible still has relevance mm-hmm. and importance in the Christian faith, and I don't want that to go unsaid. Mm-hmm. Um, well, at the same time, though, uh, let's be realistic here, folks, and let's understand this just like we would understand any other historical document. Mm. Um, now, in the idea of the Bible being the word of God, I do bring it back around and say, I believe the Bible can become the word of God through a whole variety of circumstances, including things like prayer, uh, meditation, um, all of these things within the believer. Mm. It manifests that way. Mm-hmm. But uh, for for someone to and I to me now I look at it as kind of stupid things like one year I was teaching a class in a in a uh, and I grabbed my Bible and I threw it on the ground so like, that's just a book folks and th- then people walked out but the people that stayed <laughs> the people right. that stayed got a great uh, lesson that day um, <laughs> but uh, so yeah there. To me, this is a a very complicated issue, but it's really uh, an important one because everybody's theology sort of like in within evangelicalism rises and falls on a lot of the premises that we hold about the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, that's really true. 
what what does it what does it look like then in your life on a regular basis like are you you know a lot of our listeners come out of that evangelical world where you know they're reading their bible every morning you know mm-hmm. it's for their devotional practice like what does it look like for you to interact with the bible on a regular basis do you read it more historically do you open it all to um hear something from god like what does it look like for eric in your in your normal life so uh, one of the, I'm going to answer your question, I promise. Yeah. So one of the goals of this book was to uh, create a book that was accessible for uh, evangelicals in particular who had a certain experience with their faith yeah, and something that they wouldn't be scared uh, by mm-hmm. and be able to engage. And I want, I wanted that to be important because I felt like in a lot of other books, um, evangelicalism is positioned as the enemy and here are all the reasons why they're stupid. So (laughs) I wanted to have something that was a little more user-friendly to uh, that, that audience with that said Mm -hmm. um, it does reflect still my own uh, views and faith in that it, um, I still hold to a lot of similar practice. I still go to church Mm -hmm. um, part of the reformed church in America um, and I still read my Bible and stuff, but it, it's, and I still pray, you know, all mm-hmm. of those things I still do. It's just that again, perspective near, uh, perspectivism, uh, my perspective has changed though, yeah. though, because of that, um, I'm not out on the street corner pounding people with it. Like my views of evangelism have completely changed. Like what it means to share Jesus with people is something that, evangelicals would look at without any context and be like, well, that is so different from what I'm used sure. to hearing and, sure. and stuff. And so like, there's all that, that acts as context for me when I do approach reading the Bible. Yeah. And that's, that's the answer I was looking for, because what I think is so, is so important for people to realize is that you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. Right? Like you hear somebody who has, you've rethought so much of your experience with Christianity, you rethought so much of the, of the history and all the different things, but yet you still do things like read your Bible. You still do things like pray. You still mm-hmm. do things like go to church. You still do all of those things, but you do it with a much different mindset from which you might've done it before or what someone else um, in, in that tribe might do it on their regular basis. So I think it's just so important for people to realize that you don't have to throw away things like prayer. You can maybe put it aside for a little while yeah, and you can rethink it. Yeah, you yeah. can rethink it and then you can slowly bring it back and maybe bring in some different practices to go along with yes. it. I just think it's so important for people to realize you don't have to throw it all away. Yeah. And I think part of the reason that that's happened again is because people have, you know, partly gone through certain processes and haven't, you know, completely gone through the entire reflective cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one of the things you said about, you said the Bible, you said this in the book too, the Bible becomes the word of God. So in other words, the Bible itself sitting on my shelf is not the word of God, but right. it can become the word of God. And I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that line of thinking is that it becomes the word of God when it impacts me in such a way that it causes me to make a change, perhaps to my life for the for the better or to do something for the good of the world. And if that's the case, then couldn't we also make the argument that there's a lot of other texts that become the word of God? Because like I have on my shelf behind me, I have... Um, some books about tarot. I have some books about the Gnostic scriptures. I have some books about Buddhism. And a lot of those things that I've read and have encountered, I think, have helped me become a better person. So again, those things sitting on my shelf are not 
the word of God, but I think that God can speak through them in such a way that they become the word of God when they come into my heart and influence me to do something different or better for the world. Am I on the right track in thinking? Uh, yeah, I would say um, I think that we would both be tracking very similar. I think that the only uh, exception I would put in there is that I I still believe things like Jesus is alive and 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 that there's a Holy Spirit who oh I said that word my bad <laughs> there's a Holy Spirit that uh, in, uh, interacts with us yeah. and and things like that and so. I would say that probably in, in my perspective, I wouldn't go as far um, mm -hmm. I, I, because I would say that the, it's really the Holy Spirit and those aspects that create that uh, the word of God within the individual. All of the other stuff, I, I believe that what you said was absolutely true. Sure. And um, so but that's where I would sort of draw the line versus like tarot cards or whatever the mm -hmm. other things were you had mentioned. Yeah. Um, it, it, that there's this source still. He didn't pen the thing mm -hmm. and he may have just been, you know, reminding people of certain events that occurred and so on and so forth. But I, I do think that there is some sort of activity that's involved there on the part of God with the human to make something special. Yeah, that makes sense. There's that. I think the reason why I've been willing to go that far is just thinking about, I think it's that verse in second Timothy or first Timothy, all scripture is God breathed. And mm -hmm. I, I read some different some different um, scholars and thinkers on that, and that word for scriptures is is writings. And so I've come to realize in my own life that whereas in the past I used to kind of draw the line and just say, well, the Bible is the Bible; it's all that I need. It is the scriptures, and that's where God speaks to me. Now I'm realizing that God is speaking to me in a variety of different ways. So I think I've opened myself up a little bit more to those different places for that reason. But I totally get your perspective. That's that, that's Alex. interesting. I'm thinking now of like uh, uh, when uh, Paul is quoting Greek philosophy and when mm -hmm. um, uh, some allusions to some uh, extra biblical writings throughout the New Testament are yeah. are also uh, included in there. So, yeah, yeah there's definitely some some way that uh, other things can impact you and can that God can use to uh, create that within the individual. Yeah. So one of the things you, you just talked about how when we when we make the Bible this inerrant, this inerrant document and this is perfect thing that theologies arise out of that. And then we we can assume that those theologies are from God and those theologies need to be ingrained into our life. And one of those big theologies is the atonement. Um, and this is the last kind of question I want to ask you. Uh, but I have a complicated relationship with the atonement because um I was ham hammered into my head with substitutionary atonement, you know, growing up and you're a wretched worm and you know, you're no good. And somebody needed to die on your behalf because God was really ticked. So, you know, Jesus died to save us from his angry dad and like all these different kind of things. And so once I had a daughter, like I started to rethink all that stuff and it was just so overwhelming for me. And I went through the different, the different theories, because you talk about the theories of atonement in your book, but I'm wondering if you could maybe talk to us a little bit about the atonement and maybe take us through a couple of those different theories of atonement. And like you said earlier, like you don't tell anybody what to believe, which is what I really appreciated about this section. Cause I, when I open it, I'm like, Oh, here we go. It's going to tell me what I need to believe about the atonement, but you didn't do that at all. Just kind of laid it out on the table. And then you kind of left me with all this stuff, different things to think about. So I'm wondering if you could just uh, take our listeners into that piece uh, just a little bit. Sure. Love to, this is sort of like uh, one of my more recent, uh, obsessions has been on uh, <laughs> atonement and stuff. So 
Um, there, throughout uh, church history, there have been various views of what it means for Christ to die and rise mm -hmm. again, and what the whole thing means from the context of the uh, Hebrew scriptures through to the incarnation. And throughout history, people have come up with all these different theories. There's like, you know, five to eight that have sort of stood the test of time that various people throughout various denominations will believe in. And I outline what those are in the book. Mm -hmm. um, I have in more recent times developed sort of a hybrid model myself because I don't think any of them really sort of capture. I feel like that. Uh, they're all in one, in some sense, very um, isolated, very spe too specific, almost mm -hmm. that they don't capture a lot enough of the elements of what's actually taking place in the story for mm -hmm. for me to to adhere to a theory of atonement. So I sort of have this uh, uh, hybrid model that be really begins in uh, the the story of the the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, and really sort of looking at what's really going on in that story. And I feel like if we can get that, if we can start in the right place there, then uh, go through the rest of the Hebrew scriptures and then into the incarnation and understand the sort of evolution that takes place. I believe that there is this uh, sort of like a meta narrative that's taking place that, or that tells us, you know, look, this is really what's going on. And so to, for me, Adam and Eve is really lost. So it's this idea of lostness, and um, and you see that as the Hebrew scriptures, as that story progresses, the lostness gets worse. Mm. So at the beginning, Adam and Eve are very close to God, and through various circumstances, they become lost, and they continue to move. And then you have this development of Israel, and so on, and they're getting worse and worse and worse throughout the story until God becomes silent. And when God becomes silent, there's a reorganization taking place where he is going to do something big, the prophets tell us. And uh, really, the incarnation is that moment where um, the reality of the situation is is coming into perspective. And God has the only way that God can bring man. So I, I, I sort of imagine it as as the stories progress and this lostness is not only going further um, away from God, but it's also, you know, going down too. So it's just really like, if God's up here, it's just really as separate as you can be from God. Mm -hmm. Humanity has, has gone. And so, so, you know, and some of this is classic theology too. So like then the incarnation, God comes to man. And, um, I feel like the cross then is this, this idea of, uh, God re being reconnected with humanity in this new way, mm -hmm. in a way that they can't become lost anymore. And the reason they can't become lost anymore is because God has planted his spirit on earth to be with the church and to be with humans and to help guide them through things, through life and to make them better people. And to ultimately, which I believe this is, you know, Jesus came to do the will of God. He did not mm -hmm. come to uh, save me from my sins. Mm -hmm. He came to do the will of God. So what was the will of God? The will of God was that he could become connected back to humanity in some way who had become so lost, they couldn't find God on their own. Yeah. And that's, that's really good. And again, I mean, what I want people to hear is just like, you're, you're using terms that we're familiar with, especially if you spend time in the church, you're using terms like incarnation, you're using terms like atonement, you're using all these terms, but you're thinking about them in much different ways. And I think that that's so 
it's so good because I know for myself, I've been so resistant to the word atonement because yeah. of all the baggage. And I've gone through all the different theories of atonement. And I'm like, listen, there was never a time, I believe, when I was separated from God. I might be far away from God, but I feel like there's always that that connection. And I've I've struggled so much to get out of my my mind that image that like there's this gap and the cross comes down in the gap. And that's what fills the gap. And it's yeah. believing in the cross is what gets me back over to God. And that's the only way I've been able to think about atonement. But you bring such a unique and helpful perspective to it that it makes me feel much less resistant to talking about it. Because usually when somebody brings up atonement, all these inner defenses go up. And I'm like, no, I'm not going <laughs> to talk about it. I'm not going to go there. But uh, you, you've helped bring down some of those defenses. So right. really well done. Uh, yeah. So and, you know, I try to do that throughout the throughout the book so yeah. that that you know, those defenses do come down because I don't think really, honestly, there's this, you know, progressives are, um, they, they like to have fun with evangelicals a lot. <laughs> and, right. uh, uh, and I'm just as guilty as other people too, of, you know, you know, saying provocative things in order to get a rise out of somebody and, um, so on and so forth. But, uh, <laughs> I think in, at the end of the day, as long as people can sit down and have a rational conversation, there is still, uh, some connecting points there. Yeah. And right. there is some crazy stuff I do say in the book. So mm -hmm. if you're looking for crazy, there is some crazy there. There's some probably crazy. not as much that you're used to. That's right. There's some quotable crazy things there for sure. Yeah. So uh, last thing, this is the last thing now. If there was somebody on the on the mic today who is deconstructing, they're asking a lot of questions. Maybe they're receiving that kickback from their tribe. Maybe they're saying provocative things and they're, you know, they're getting they're getting heat and they don't really know where they're going, what direction they're headed, but they have a lot of questions. They're frustrated. They're overwhelmed. Uh, what would your word of encouragement be for that person today? Well, that they're not alone, that there have been many who have gone before them and that they should begin to seek out their wisdom. Um, yeah. And I, uh, you know, I mean, I, I've said this before um, that we, that for me, uh, I really found a lot of uh, uh, encouragement in Brian McLaren's writings. So I, I, for me, he was a big mentor. And then later, you know, like 20 years later, meeting him. Yeah. And he provided a blurb for my book. And so there's, for me, there's this incredible, like, evolution and sort of like connecting and like i feel like we're all brothers and sisters in this journey and and i and i don't think that it's hard for people you know to begin with social media and look at some groups that are out there there's a lot of support so um and, but i definitely think that it's support is important and i try to emphasize that in the latter part of the book too that that uh i really individuals can definitely read this and um I, th I think you'll probably have a link to the website for the book, but I'm also providing additional resources there for people as well. Some additional commentary that on difficult chapters, like please just make it through the Trinity section. I know that it's hard, but just <laughs> if you make it through it, I promise it will be worth it. Yeah. And it will. That's a, uh, that is a, that's a good section. That's what I was going to ask you about, but we don't have the time to land there today, <laughs> but that that's a, that's a big section and there's a lot of things in there, but you, uh, you you bring some helpful and unique perspective. But I think what you said about community is key because you feel so alone when you enter yeah. this world. And I think being brought up in evangelicalism, you're told, I mean, it's fed to you that there is no life outside of this. And so if you leave this, like you're going astray, you're going far away, like it's it's hell out there. So you have to stay here. So when you leave that bubble, you're, you're left with all those feelings of I'm going to be alone. There is nobody out here who's going to be able to help me, but that's just not true and i think like you said use social media to your advantage because 
even a lot of these people are willing to talk to you. Like Brian McLaren was one of the first people I reached out to on Twitter and I asked him a question. I'm like, he's never going to answer me. And he answered me. And then we had like this tweet exchange going back and forth where he was really helping me with some real theological questions. And then we got to meet and things like that. But there's other people too. Like you just reach out to people, like reach out to, reach out to Eric, ask him a question yeah, on Facebook. Absolutely. Like, these people will answer you and show you that you're not alone. Mm-hmm. That's huge. That's huge. And trust the process. Yeah. It, it'll be discouraging at first, yeah. but trust the process. It'll come back around. That's right. Well, Eric, we're just about out of time, but this has been uh, a lot of fun. Maybe we can do it again sometime because yeah. I got more questions. Great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah, for sure. And real quick, uh, just reiterate those links where people can go to find you and uh, interact with you and your stuff online. Yeah. So like the um, the best link for the book is un- unenlightenmentthebook.com. Mm-hmm. You can get a lot of resources, information about the book, contact information, stuff like that. I also write for Pathios. Just look me up there and my Unenlightenment podcast on YouTube, Podbean. Cool. And you're on Facebook, you're on Twitter, yep, Instagram, Instagram, all, all the places. All the places. I'm there. Great. We'll put all the links in the show notes. Awesome. Thank Amen. you so much. Thanks so much. Everyone for an exchange, trying to make a little change. Coming up on the tray. Take that to the bank, yeah. Make sure you maintain. Little money, make it dance. Climbing up on the chain, yeah. Number one on the ranks. Everyone for an exchange, trying to make a little change. Coming up on the tray. Take that to the bank, yeah. Make sure you maintain. Little money, make it dance. Climbing up on the chain, yeah. Number one on the red. Here go my plate, I collect. I'm taking whatever I get. I'm constantly chasing the check. Make sure my mental is check. One thing I can never forget. I'm seeking for financial freedom, I'm set. Can settle for nothing or less. I'm not the one to finesse. About to be primes, know the shade, ignore the dodge. Over here popping, I done came up and I'm moving these columns. One click, then boom. Money transforms zoom. Bank accounts start to bloom. No need to assume. Everyone for an exchange. Trying to make a little change. Coming up on the tray. Take that to the bank, yeah. Make sure you maintain. Little money, make it dance. Climbing up on the chain, yeah. Number one on the ranks. Everyone for an exchange. Trying to make a little change. Coming up on the tray. Take that to the bank, yeah. Make sure you maintain. Little money, make it dance. Climbing up on the chain, yeah. Number one on the ranks. Celebrate, it's a good day, I'm getting paid On a new level, it's in my face Throwing in bags, I need to save It's on lock, washing my back as it's hot The numbers, I'm moving the stock No time to waste on the clock I'm hitting the big on my way to the top Make sure my family are good I'm sharing the work cause it's equal to lot We got got heads in the pot The motto is we all we got Huh, the ones who died to do everything that I forgot It's all love, I'm in it to win it Either you win it or not Everyone for an exchange, trying to make a little change. Coming up on the tray, take that to the bank, yeah. Make sure you maintain. Little money, make it dance. Climbing up on the chain, yeah. Number one on the ranks. Everyone for an exchange, trying to make a little change. Coming up on the tray, take that to the bank, yeah. Make sure you maintain. Little money, make it dance. Climbing up on the chain, yeah. Number one on the ranks.